Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Matt, if you'll come up here, I'll pray for you. Lord, um, we thank you for, for Matt and Kate and for Aurelia and the, the Ridges, um, just for your goodness and bringing them to us and allowing them to be a part of our body. And, and I'm grateful for their service and just care for so many people here. And Lord, we're, we're thankful most of all for um, your care for us that we um, hear we we see in this passage, Lord, we want to feel that. We want to experience that um, today in our daily life. And we just pray that you would um, embolden and empower and just use um, your servant Matt here um, as he um, preaches your word to us, Father. We thank you that we can come together and, and give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you, Kevin. Good morning. Thank all of you as well who have been praying for me the past few weeks and this morning. Definitely needed and appreciated. Um, just feel so honored and blessed to be able to bring you God's word today. So as a few of you might already know, uh, I grew up on the mission field in Latin America for majority of my life, and my parents have been missionaries uh, pretty much that entire time as well, still missionaries today. Um, and throughout that time, I've gotten to see them work in a lot of different ministry contexts. You know, they've worked with addiction recovery, planning house churches, uh, with indigenous groups who had not yet been reached in the Amazon. But maybe one of the more unique, interesting things I've gotten to see them work with, specifically my dad, was with the American Football League in Brazil, getting that started. So kind of sounds like an oxymoron, but... He helped to establish it with our local team, teaching a bunch of guys who were a little bit too big, a little bit too thick to play soccer, uh, teaching them the rules to American football. Uh, started off with a lot of bloody noses and things like that as they were trying to figure it out. Uh, and as the league got more established, he even got to ref some games, even their Super Bowl. And you know, the hour-long car ride back home after you found out you've been booing your dad for his terrible calls is a little awkward. But this particular story, there was this group of Brazilians who went with their American coaches back to the U.S. to get to see some NFL games, get to see some college games, learn a little bit more about the sport that they were, they were trying to pick up, uh, and it was just a really great experience for them overall. And out of all the games and stadiums that they got to see, for them, the highlight was going to Notre Dame. And it wasn't because they saw this awesome game, it wasn't because there was just some awesome place. They're like, all right, we're going to take that back to Brazil and we're going to implement those. No, they had all just watched the movie Rudy. <laughs> and so they were just excited. And if you're not familiar with Rudy, you know, he's this small guy, really wants to desperately play football for Notre Dame. That's his life's goal. And he's just not athletic enough. He's too small. He can't make it on the team. Uh, and then his grades aren't good enough. His family's not rich enough for him to be able to go to the school. But, you know... In a classic tale of overcoming struggles, he makes it to Notre Dame, walks on the team, but he's just on the practice squad. 
until finally his senior year, all the seniors are going out except Rudy, but the crowd just starts chanting, Rudy, Rudy, and he makes it on the field, gets a sack, and it's just this inspiring story of hard work, determination, captures the American dream. And when these Brazilian athletes walked into the stadium, they just couldn't help it. Their hearts were moved, and they just said, like, we're here, we're where Rudy stood, this is where it all went down, this is where it happened. And I'll always remember my dad's reaction to hearing their reaction. He was always, what are you talking about? You got to see all those amazing athletes, you went to so many better games. Joe Montana played for Notre Dame on that team. If you're going to be impressed with anyone, be impressed with him. Who cares about Rudy? And in our psalm today, the author, he's calling us back. He's calling us back to worshiping and giving thanks to the one true God. And the Bible, we often see the Israelites, their heads get turned by lesser gods. They look to worship idols. You know, we see the small, weak walk-on, and we forget the Hall of Fame quarterback that's staring us in the face. We're moved by things that just can't measure up to God. So today, I want us to reflect on two truths about who God is. First, he is our God, and second, our God is good. And then third, how we should respond to that, knowing that we have no choice but to thank our good God, to respond in gratitude. Those football players entered that stadium and they just couldn't help but be amazed. But Karis, we have something better here today to be amazed by. Karis, the point here is that as God's people, we have no choice but to give thanks to God and to lift praises to him because he is good. So the first truth about the Lord that we see in the psalm is he is our God. In verse 3, the psalmist commands God's people to know God. And this isn't just a surface-level knowledge. This isn't just knowing about him. This is truly and deeply knowing who God is. You know, every other Thursday, we've been having men's breakfast, and Benga, he's been doing an awesome job with our men's ministry, and he's been leading us through J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. And in this book, he really emphasizes that difference of knowing about and knowing who God is truly. You know, Packer talks about that there's a lot of Christians who... We've grown up in Sunday school, or we've just interacted with a lot of Christians, and so we know the right words to say. We know the things when people ask us about God. But listen to what Packer says here. Yet, the gaiety, goodness, and unfetteredness of spirit are the marks of those who have known God are rare among us. A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about him. So let's truly know God. You know, we might say that we know about celebrities, someone like Taylor Swift. You know, we know facts about her, that she's a good singer, she loves the number 13, I think she has a new boyfriend who likes sports, something like that. But if you ask us about our family, our close friends, or our spouses, you know, we'll be able to list off more than just a few facts, a few of those quick things. You know, I can tell you about my wife's hopes, her dreams, her goals, her personality, what makes her tick. I can just summarize, I can tell you about her heart and what that's like. And that should be a desire of us as Christians, that we truly and deeply know God's heart. We know his heart so well that the things that God desires and wants become the same things that we desire too. So let's get to know God. At the beginning of verse 3 in our psalm today, we read, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. He made us, and we are his. In Genesis 1, 27 through 28, in the story of creation, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. 
And God said to, oh, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. So from the start, God created us humans as his image bearers. And he created us with a special purpose and responsibility towards the rest of the, his creation. And this is part of what it means to know him, that we know him as his creator, as our creator, and that we know that we, as his image bearers, we belong to him. And we have a responsibility because of that. As a staff, together the past few months, we've been reading a book by Alan Noble called You Are Not Your Own. And Noble comments on how a lot of our modern problems, you know, things that we've heard afflicting society, things like anxiety, stress, depression, any number of mental health issues that have just really become at the forefront today, that a lot of these are because we're looking for belonging, but we're looking for it in either the wrong thing that we're trying to belong to, or we've been trying to belong to ourselves. And so why do we choose, you know, what's the question here? Why do we choose to belong to ourselves or to something else rather than belong to God? We've seen that he created us. We're made in his image. That's who we belong to. Well, the way that Noble puts it is that belonging necessitates limits. And the question is to whom we belong. If we belong to ourselves, then we get to set those limits, which means we have no limits except our own will. But if we belong to God, then knowing and abiding by his limits enables us to live as we were created to live, as the humans that he designed us to be. So again, why do we choose not to belong to God? It's because belonging necessitates limits, and we just desperately want to set our own limits. We don't want to have to answer to anybody else. We want to enjoy our freedom. We want to be able to make the rules. We don't want to have to answer to God. We're afraid that if we do that, that we're going to miss out on what life has to offer. You know, we view losing independence as some kind of death sentence. And this is especially hard here in the U.S. for us to overcome. You know, we're born growing up hearing that this is the land of the free and that independence, freedom, that's been something that we fought so hard for and that's the value above everything else. So it's really hard to read something that says, hey, you belong to somebody else. You belong to someone who's going to set those limits. You belong to someone who's going to put restrictions on you. It, it makes us uncomfortable. It doesn't really seem natural. We don't really know what to do with that. And, you know, to be fair, there may be some things that you'll miss out on. Um, but what we get when we belong to God and we embrace that is so much better. You know, I belong to my wife. She belongs to me. And so because of that relationship, we have limits. You know, in a marriage, you are joined to that one person, that person alone, and you're not free to pursue other romantic relationships. That is a limit. That is a restriction that's placed on marriage. But when we embrace it, when we really dive into that limit, we get to enjoy a relationship that is so much more beautiful and so much more meaningful than if we had our freedom, than if we had our freedom to go and do what we wanted. So have you thought about maybe what those limits look like with God, what that restriction looks like? Well, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, Paul writes, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, who you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We have limits that have been placed on us by God. And Christ died on the cross for our sins to save us. He bought us with a price. And as Christians, we belong to the Creator. And so we are not free to do what we want with our bodies. We are not free to pursue that. But if we embrace that belonging to God, just like we embrace that belonging in a marriage, we enjoy a relationship that is so much more beautiful, so much more meaningful, and one that we actually get to fulfill our true purpose, which is to bring glory to God.
Not only do we belong to God, but let's look at the rest of verse 3 in Psalm 100. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. He cares for us. We don't just belong to him, but he cares for us. We're his sheep. If you're hearing this relationship of belonging to a father or to a spouse and you think of images of an abusive father, an abusive spouse, know that that's not this relationship. I know that, that can be something that's scary for some people, but that's not the relationship that we have with God. He's someone who is caring, who watches over us the same way that a shepherd, a good shepherd, watches over his sheep, the one that would be willing to leave the 99 others and go after the one lost. So if you're here today and you're feeling lonely, if you're feeling isolated, you're longing for some kind of closeness, all of your relationships that you've been in just have seemed broken, they haven't seemed to measure up and you just don't know why, then I want to invite you to the comfort and the peace that comes with just fully pushing into belonging to God. I want to invite you to join the family, the community of believers that God has provided for you, that we have here. Know that he is our God and know that we belong to him. He cares for us. He is our God. And second, not only is he our God, but our God is good. We've gotten to see a little bit of that. Our God is good. And how can we know it? Well, verse 5 from our psalm says, For the Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness is to all generations. These are the characteristics of God that have always been and always will be. They're the same today, yesterday, tomorrow. He hasn't changed. He's always faithful and always loves us, even when we have abandoned him and we don't uphold our end of the deal. This psalm is being written to people of Israel who lived under a lot of different covenants, and their history is just fully marked with experiencing God's everlasting love and faithfulness, but them turning from him, them turning to other idols and not being faithful. And a lot of times we like to read the Old Testament and think, man, they, they, didn't, they were speaking to God. They heard his voice. I can't believe they would do that. If I was living then, I would be so much different. I would, I would totally do it different. I would listen to God, but that's not true. We wouldn't. That's not how it would go. So like I said, the Israelites were living under a bunch of different covenants or promises, things that God told them, hey, if you do this, I'm going to bless you. This is what you're going to get from me if you go ahead and follow these rules. Uh, one of those was the Abrahamic covenant. It was a promise that Abraham, an old man, well past the years, and his wife, well past years for bearing children, was going to have descendants that were just as numerous as the stars or the sand on the beach. And that through these descendants, that all the world, all nations, they were going to experience blessing. And then God also made a promise to the people of Israel through Moses. He gave them the law. But before Moses could even get down the mountain, the people of God had already forgotten their salvation. They'd already forgotten how they were brought out of Israel, they were saved from slavery, and they were already worshiping a golden calf. They were already worshiping other gods. They were already committing sexual immorality, breaking one of the commandments that God had given them. Before God could even finish giving them the law, they were breaking it. And part of this is that a sacrifice has to be made, something that's holy and blameless, something that can cover their sins, cover that law-breaking. And then finally, as we read the Psalms, we can't help but think about King David and the promise that God made to him, that as long as him and his kids were faithful to God, you're going to have a son on the throne. You're going to have someone that's going to rule over Israel. Just follow me, follow those. But David's children, and even David himself, they murdered, they raped, 
They took multiple wives, and they led the nation away from God consistently to worship other gods. And like I said, we're not any different. You know, one day we sin, and we make our promise to God. We say, all right, hey, that was the last time. I feel really bad about it. I'm not going to do it again. I promise you. That's that last lie. That's that last time I'm going to get angry. Uh, That's that last time that I'm going to look at that woman or that man on my computer screen. But if we're honest with ourselves, how many times have we said, that's the last time? But praise God. Thank him, church, because despite our sin and our consistent inconsistency, God is constant and he is unwavering and he is unchanging in his faithfulness and love towards us. He is so much better and so much greater to forgive us than we could ever sin, so much greater than our sin. We like to think that we're good or that we can be good, Uh, And, you know, to some kind of extent, maybe we can, maybe we are. You know, we see people do good stuff all the time. But the greatest act of love or devotion that you or I could ever do for one another, could ever do, it just doesn't measure up. It just falls short every single time of what God does. It doesn't measure up in terms of the magnitude of his goodness and greatness, and it doesn't measure up in terms of those long-lasting effects. And, you know, we see this with governments, organizations, at the individual level, You know, some of you might be familiar with the organization FIFA. This is what oversees and governs all the different soccer leagues around the world. It's like the NBA, but just internationally. And they constantly have these different social justice campaigns. You know, say no to racism, uh, we hate racism, gender equality, we're going to push that. And they have a bunch of other different social justice campaigns, but they quickly forget about those and the people they're trying to protect, and they take bribes, they give money, to regimes and governments that are actively treating other ethnicities and nationalities as lesser than human. They're constantly helping out those regimes that say that women are second-class citizens. They just oppress the same people they claim to care about. And you know, you might think, well, that's a big organization, that's governments, that's billionaires, we know that they're evil, right? We all know that those people are evil, but we're good at the individual level. But how often do we treat even the people that we claim to love the most terribly? How often do one day we say, hey, I do anything for you, I love you, I'm gonna just work hard to serve you, but then the next day, with the way that we talk, with our words, the way that we treat them, we just, we mess up, we do poorly. Only God can actually do something about his goodness, and only God's goodness and love is constant and unchanging and consistent. We see this ultimate demonstration of his love and his faithfulness to his people through his son's death and resurrection on the cross. Jesus was the offspring promised to Abraham, the one that all nations were going to be blessed through. It means that you and I can be brought into God's people and his family. We see this in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say, and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. He is that promised descendant, that promised one that's going to bless all nations and allows us to taste and see that. Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of the law that was given to Moses. As a church, we've been going through the book of Matthew, and you might remember from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, when Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He came to fulfill the law the law that was impossible for you or I to ever keep on our own, the law that the moment Moses was coming down from the mountain, we were breaking. 
He's the only perfect sacrifice, the only one, the only sacrificial lamb that could fully and finally cover our sins and bring us back into community with God. There wouldn't have to be another one. You know, it may take us a few years, but eventually, I promise, we'll get to Matthew 21, and there we're going to see Christ's triumphal entry as he comes in riding on a donkey to the city of Jerusalem, and we hear the crowds shout out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus is the son of David, the better David, the rightful ruler and king over God's people, the good and gentle ruler. He is fulfilled all of those covenants and promises that God made, seeing from the beginning that God's plan was working all the way through till now and into the future. His death and resurrection on the cross was the ultimate showing of God's love towards his people, towards the Israelites and towards us, the church. Even though we rejected him, we didn't want anything to do with him, we told him, hey, we're fine on our own. I'm gonna belong to myself because I know better. I know the rules. I'm gonna make those. He didn't abandon us. He didn't leave us. And in fact, even on the cross, as he's being murdered by those people that he came to save, he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. There is no greater love than this, Chorus. Come and taste and see that the Lord, our Lord, is good. And now knowing that he's our God, knowing that we belong to him and that he's good, we'll see, thirdly, that there's just no option but to thank our good God. This is what stands out from the psalm. After all, right at the beginning, we're told that it's a psalm for giving thanks, and this is Thanksgiving week after all. And with these characteristics of God in mind, that we belong to him, that he is good, that he's our creator, let's see the instructions that are given in verses 1, 2, and 4, those that tell us how we're supposed to properly express our gratitude towards him. The psalmist actually gives us instructions to do this. And our first command in verse 1 is to make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. And now this phrase or verse, you may have heard it before, make a joyful noise. A lot of times people like to use it, you know, people like me, to excuse how terrible we sing. You know, I can't sing well, but I can make a joyful noise. Uh, and if you've ever had the misfortune of hearing me sing, if you hang out back in that baby corner, then the feeling you feel is probably not joy. Um, but this isn't saying, all right, you people who can't sing well, you guys just go over here, be loud, kind of sound a little happy. The rest of us, we're going to go over here and actually make that beautiful worship music. No, that's not what it's saying at all. It's a, to raise a cry or an exultation to God. It's a victory cry after a battle. It's less of that tone-deaf singer and more of that energetic fan who, after the wind, just can't help but scream in joy, just can't help but shout and storm onto the field. Not that anybody in this room would storm onto a field after a win, right? You can blame Kevin if your tuition prices are going up this year. <laughs> Next, in verse 2, we're commanded to serve the Lord with gladness. Our service, our obedience to God, that's actually a way that we can thank him. Have you thought about that? And it's not only doing that, but it's doing so with a glad heart. And as God's people, we don't have any option but to thank God. You know, we have seen how he gives sacrificially, how he gives willingly of himself, and so we should have that motivation even more so to give sacrificially and willing of ourselves to give to his people and to give back to God as well. And then the second half of verse four, or sorry, the second half of verse two and the first part of verse four, we're called to come into his presence with singing and enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. 
And we were supposed to lift up joyful singing and praise and thanks to God. That's another one of our commands. And then finally, verse 4 finishes off with us giving thanks to him, blessing his name. And knowing what we know from verses 3 and from verses 5, we know that what God has done, and we, that should lead us just to celebrate. We know his character, we know his goodness, and we know our position in relation to God. And so let's just celebrate that. This psalm, it gives us the roadmap to help us better understand how we show our gratitude. And, you know, we reflect on our relationship to God as our creator. We reflect on our belonging to him. We reflect on how good he has been throughout history. And that may naturally move us, just like those Brazilian athletes. They come into the Notre Dame Stadium, and they just are naturally moved. We're moved towards worship, adoration, and gratitude. But when we see this prescription of commands, we know that the psalmist doesn't take that for granted, you know. He's not just saying to worship God, but he's actually giving, you know, here's why. Here's the explanation. So how do we kind of get our heads, our minds into this kind of mindset? You know, honestly, if we reflect, there's been plenty of times in our lives where there's been struggle, there's been hurt, where we say, all right, I know in my head that God is good. I've heard it, but I just can't see it right now. It's just really hard for me to see that light at the end of the tunnel. I, I just, it's really hard. So how do we get from that head knowledge that tells us God is good to have that heart knowledge so that, like Job, we can cry out that the Lord gives and he takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Or that knowledge that tells us to follow Paul's commands in 1 Thessalonians 5, to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So I believe that there are two main application points for shepherding our hearts towards this attitude of gratefulness and this attitude of worship to God, even in those moments where it's really hard to see it. I believe that we should first reflect on what God has done, and second, cultivate rhythms of worship. So first we do this by reflecting on what God has done, and second, by cultivating rhythms of worship. So first, reflecting on what he has done. The psalmist from our passage today calls God's people to lift up praises and to worship him, but he doesn't just leave it there. He reminds God's people of their status in relation to God. He reminds them of how they were created by him, how he cares for them, and how he's always been there for them with love and faithfulness, even when they've abandoned him and they can't keep their promises to him. So let's do the same. If you're here today and you're a believer, let's just reflect on our belonging to God and give thanks to him for that. We have that standing with him. Let's reflect on his love and faithfulness that led to Christ saving us from death, that led to us coming to know Christ. But there's more than just that great work that Christ has done on the cross. That is certainly the biggest and the largest reason to give thanks to him. But we have even smaller ones, you know? We just spent a week where you went around the table probably, like a lot of families, and said what you were thankful for. Let's do that every day. Second, I think it requires cultivating rhythms of worship in our lives. Glorifying God is our ultimate purpose. To bring him glory is what we were created to do. But just like a world-class musician or an athlete that's trying to reach their full potential, this isn't something that always is natural. It's something that requires us to take time, practice, and I think it's something that requires us to incorporate it into our daily lives. You know, you have to put it there so that it's just second nature. Glorifying God just becomes as easy as breathing. So that even when we're beaten down and we're discouraged by the troubles of this world, we can be obedient to our Father. Well, what do these rhythms look like? What might this look like in our lives if we were to do this practically? I think that they look like a lot of stuff that we already have implemented here at Chorus. 
you know, we have our Sunday morning liturgy. This is the natural order that our gathering follows. We gathered together and we sang praises to God. We read his word together. We learned from his word through preaching every week. And then in a little bit, we'll take communion together. And then we'll finish off again by singing. And this is our Sunday morning rhythm of worship. This is what we do on Sunday. And then throughout the week, you know, we have our MCs, our small groups, those missional communities that we gather together as a church family to eat, to pray, to just lift each other up as believers and encourage one another. And that's a rhythm of worship. And then every year, Kevin and Joy, they work together on a field guide that helps us go through the Bible in prayer, helps us read through um, the Psalms, the other different books of the Bible, and pray and reflect on God. And that's a great way, if you haven't done so already, I know there'll be a new one coming out soon, where you can incorporate a rhythm of worship into your life wherever, you, you know, wherever it fits in. And then speaking of the field guide, every Wednesday at Cars here, we have a prayer meeting over here on the side stage. If you're an early bird and you want to get up for a 631, you, uh, we have one then. Or if you, know, you have a longer lunch break, come at noon and pray with Kevin and Hannah. As we just go through and we, um, we lift up praises to God, we ask for forgiveness, confess our sins, we pray for one another, for our church, for our city, for those that know God and for those who don't yet know that he might soften their hearts. And these are just some of the ways that are already here at Chorus for us to, to um, incorporate those rhythms in our lives. But, you know, people have a bunch of different ways. You know, reading the Bible daily, spending that um, devotional time is certainly one way. Having that time with your family to pray is another. For other people, it just involves walking through nature and you reflect on just the beauty of creation and that allows you to reflect on the beauty of the creator. Something that whatever focuses your mind and your heart back towards God and his greatness, that can be a rhythm of worship to incorporate in your life. You know, like I said, we just spent a week engorging ourselves, but also saying what we're thankful for. And I know that personally, I was thankful for a lot of different inconsequential things. I'm really happy when my four-month-old daughter gets sleep. I was really great that she made it all the way till 2 a.m. last night. Awesome. And I'm grateful whenever my teams win games. And you know, now we're gonna go into a season where we're gonna spend a lot more time idolizing the things that we want and don't have, uh, rather than reflecting on the goodness of our creator. We're gonna act like those Brazilian athletes who the object of their worship was flawed and warped when there's someone bigger and greater who deserves our worship, Karis. So if you're here today and you're a follower of Christ, I wanna remind you that you belong to a good God. You belong to a God who is caring, who is always faithful, even though we constantly reject him. So let's thank him. Going back to Alan Noble's book, um, when he talks about how belonging has limits, he also talks about what there is to gain from belonging to God. He says, if we are not our own but belong to Christ, then we are not free to belong wherever and to whomever we choose. We have limits and we have obligations, but we can never be lost. No matter how uncertain, disorienting, and alienating the world may become, we can never be lost. If you're a believer, take comfort and give thanks that you cannot be lost. You belong to God no matter what. And if you don't yet know Jesus, I wanna invite you into this. If you're feeling alone, if you're struggling to find your place or purpose in this world, know that it's with God. He created you and he loves you. Please come back to him. And if you do, you can't be lost. You'll be with him forever. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, 
Thank you just for this time that we have to gather together. Thank you, Lord, that we can know that it's to you that we belong and that we can take comfort in that and that we won't be lost. Thank you, God, that you are good even when we are constantly not good, even when we are constantly failing. Lord, thank you for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.